You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, the foraging was going well for the large force of British regulars and Hessians, some 500, as they raided the western part of New Jersey looking for food and supplies, specifically the Van Nest Mill in the town of Millstone. Bags of flour were loaded upon wagon train. This would help the British get through their 1777 winter. And just to be sure there'd be no trouble with the foraging party, They came in big numbers, with soldiers, and brought cannon, which they aimed at a bridge nearby. So it must have been a surprise when, out of the shadows, an equal force of armed riflemen, colonial militias, it would turn out, they couldn't know this, appeared. They had done the unthinkable, broken up ice, and forded in an icy river, holding their rifles up, crossing to the other side of the bank, where the foraging party was. Militia and excellent Pennsylvania rifles had surprised the foraging from where they least expected it, and where they couldn't defend. The cannons were in the wrong spot now. They weren't using the bridge, and could not be used for defense. These members of the New Jersey militia engaged the British, and killed 25 captured 12, and drove them away. And in doing so, they denied them of all that they had captured, all of the foraging that was designed to feed the troops. And it was a lot. 115 cattle, 70 sheep, 40 barrels of flour, as well as cheese, butter, and ham. The Continentals would eat well tonight. This group was following George Washington's explicit instructions, and they were part of a large strategy, one that doesn't get much coverage in Revolutionary War books. A little, but not much. He informed Continental Congress January 12, 1777, right after his victories in Trenton and Princeton. The enemy have made no move since my last. By every account, they begin to be distressed, particularly for forage, of which there is little, or none remaining, in a small circle they possess, except salt. In January 17th, he informs Congress again, the enemy is being driven back from the most part of the province of Jersey and are much distressed for provision. He had given his general's orders not to let the British alone, but to be constantly harassing the enemy. Be aggressive. General Philemon Dickinson was, and he received the thanks of his commander-in-chief. His behavior, he, uh, Washington told Congress about Dickinson, reflects the highest honor upon him. Although his troops were raw, he gave the enemy so severe a chase that they gave way and left their convoy. This 
was the Forage War, the Petite Guerre of New Jersey of 1777, the Grand Farage, whatever it's called by the few historians that mention it, the battle over supply. As you know, we're kind of doing a little underground podcast within the premium podcast called American Revolutionary War Sketches. And so I'm just taking on little topics that I don't think get enough coverage, but that can help you understand the American Revolution. This is one of them on the Forage War. And just like many conflicts where it's made up of a lot of little conflicts that have to be summarized to be well understood, it was a collection of skirmishes, aggressive attacks on garrisons, guards, foragers, anywhere the British could be found and outnumbered or surprised by a larger force to help supplement the victories of Trenton and Princeton, where in some measure Washington was doing much the same thing, not attacking the main army, but finding a stranded rear guard and overwhelming them. These additional small victories in Jersey added up, helped boost American morale, scared the heck out of the British and especially the Hessians, deprived British of food, increased the continental supply of food. It shrunk where they could operate and forced them to abandon posts, and it may have well determined the war. Millstone was one of those battles forgotten to most of history. Another was Elizabethtown, Elizabeth, New Jersey, an important town at that time, one that the British hoped to hold a garrison in. After supply parties were attacked, going out to forage for Elizabethtown and sniped at, the commander there sent 50 soldiers to clear out the local area. The British in Elizabethtown heard the unmistakable sound of musket fire. And soon after that, they noted that the 50 soldiers did not come back. Their captors in the Jersey militia allowed a few riders to return to town to give them the news and to scare the rest. As it turned out, 10 of those soldiers were killed, 40 captured. With that, the British abandoned Elizabethtown in a hurry and headed to Amboy, where a larger garrison was. They were not allowed to do this in peace. The Jersey militia sniped and harassed the rear guard and captured a hundred more men. This from David Hackett Fisher's Washington's Crossing, which gives a superior account of the forage war in, in Jersey. The most active continental officer in this work was General William Maxwell, an extraordinary character and a combat leader of true genius. His campaigns in the Winter War were models of the military art. Maxwell was a Scotch-Irish immigrant, born and raised in County Tyrone, with an Ulster accent so thick that his troops called him Scotch Willie. He settled in northwestern New Jersey in 1747, became a frontier teacher and trader, took an Indian woman for his common-law wife, and soldiered in the Indian Wars with the Jersey Blues and later the Royal Americans. He strongly supported the Revolution, saw much active service on the northern frontier, and joined the Continental Army in New Jersey and stayed with it through the winter. In January, Washington sent him into the field with orders to work with the Jersey militia to annoy and harass the enemy at every opportunity, 
but to avoid a general engagement. The object was to keep British and Hessian forces on the defensive and to gain control of the New Jersey countryside. British commanders had no wish for a cold-weather campaign in which they had little to gain and much to lose. General Howe wanted to gather his resources for a major effort in the spring and summer of 1777. Under growing pressure from the New Jersey militia, he ordered his garrisons in central Jersey to withdraw to a small enclave along the Raritan River from Brunswick to Amboy. There were other engagements. Captain John Stryker gets a British supply train near 10-mile run. Warm winter clothes are now sent to Washington's army in Valley Forge. In Woodbridge, William Maxwell beats two regiments and inflicts 20 casualties with two men wounded on his own side. At Chatham, Virginia Continentals capture 70 Highlanders and their wagons. At Connecticut Farms, Colonel Oliver Spencer attacks 100 Hessian foragers who dared enter this area that was, for loyalist New Jersey, the part settled by New Englanders and a fervent area of feeling about the revolution. In Hackensack, the 6th, 7th, and 27th regiments of foot were stationed there. They soon were literally starving. They could not obtain food in the local areas safely and had to head to the Hudson River where they could be supplied by ship. Here's what Hessian chaplain Philip Waldwick wrote about how Hessians felt about what the Jersey militia was inflicting on them. We can no longer lie down to sleep without thinking this is the last night, the last night of freedom. Instead of undressing at night, one sleeps in their clothes. Other Hessians talked about having horses ready, about never really being able to take a break. There's something like 58 little battles between January and April 1776, and they add up. British casualties are estimated at 900 men. Just to put that in perspective, when you add that to Trenton and Princeton, where Washington and his army scored two significant victories, you now have more casualties on the British side by the time you get to spring 1777 than they inflicted on the Americans in taking New York. But it's more strategic than that. Washington is denying the British supplies, badly needed horses, which is going to eliminate the chance of a major attack in Jersey in the spring. Now, what happened is not only did they cut the theater of British operations and took over northern New Jersey, but they also scrunched the British force into these tiny garrisons. Here uh, we read about New Brunswick, now New Brunswick, then called Brunswick. More than 10,000 of these ragged regulars crowded together in a few small towns and surrounding villages. Brunswick was a town about 400 houses, partially deserted and partially destroyed. It overflowed with two battalions of British grenadiers, four battalions of Hessian grenadiers, two full brigades of British industry, the artillery train, and the 16th Light Dragoons. The Highlanders were packed into the village of Piscataway. Cornwallis's brigade went into Bonnenham Town. Leslie's brigade and the guards went to Raritan Landing. There was little left to plunder. One soldier recalled this whole region had been completely sacked during the army's march in the last autumn and had been abandoned by all the inhabitants. The troops subsisted almost entirely on salt provision. And one officer reported everything 
is scarce in the country here. General Howe sends a regiment from Rhode Island to Brunswick, and the captain, John Peebles of the 42nd Foot, finds the town so congested that his men lived aboard dirty transports in the Raritan River with nothing to eat but a little bit of salt pork. People sent his men ashore at every opportunity and got the ship a little cleaned. But living conditions grew worse through the winter, and an ugly fever seized a good many both in town and transports. The Americans showed such spirit in that fight that British officers were absolutely certain that they were not militia. They were sure that no militia would fight that way. But indeed they were. And the Jersey militia took heart from that success. An American reported, The militia here are in high spirits, and I hope they will continue so. Colonel William Harcourt observed to the American troops that they are now become a formidable enemy. They seem to be ignorant of the precision and order, and even of the principles by which large bodies are moved, but they possess some of the requisites for making good troops such as extreme cunning, great industry in moving ground, and feeling of and felling of wood, activity and a spirit of enterprise upon any advantage. One German commander thought that if the winter continued, you know, this is by March of 1777, the army would have been gradually destroyed through this foraging. General Howe arranged that forage was procured from New York, but never enough of it. The Forage War continued until the greening of the grass in the spring of 1777. You know, it's a stereotype to make, I guess, comparisons anymore about the the Vietnam War, but it it sort of fits. Um, You know, perhaps British troops weren't in a a jungle or, or a swamp, per se, but they're in a heavy wooded area of which they didn't know the terrain well, likely had insufficient maps, and were relying on major roads. And they stumbled into fights where they thought they'd overpower Americans. Uh, at the Battle of Bonham Town, again, where 2,000 British troops appeared in the field and attacked the Americans, they ran into what a British officer called a nest of American hornets, taking shot from people that they couldn't see and were defeated. The Americans lost 20 men, the British near 60. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you and what 
Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Now, General Howe was not overly concerned by these uh, incidents. Um, he thinks that, and, and this is, you have to look at this as the British mentality, thinking as an empire, that in 1777, he's going to get more troops anyway. More troops are going to be sent. Indeed, they believe that another 15,000 Germans and perhaps some Russians uh, are going to come to the American theater and maybe give him a total force of 35,000 in the area. He asks London for 20,000. And in doing so, he mentions that the effective amount of troops he has has fallen from 19,000 before Christmas to 14,000. He has no idea when news of his request comes to London what a shock it brings. The British government had severely strained its resources to provide 32,000 men for the campaign of 1776. Howe was informed that he could expect only 7,800 7, men. The result was a chronic shortage of strength in the British Army that continued throughout the American War. The campaign that followed in 1777 might have had a different outcome if the British and Hessian regiments had not lost so many of their troops before it began. Not only that, loyalists, which are pretty strong in New Jersey compared to the other colonies, are losing faith in the protection of the crown if they don't live right next to New York City, where they can easily be protected. The Pennsylvania Evening Post writes, Many of the inhabitants of Monmouth County who received written protections are now determined to return them to His Britannic Majesty's commissioners in cartridges. It was exactly the effect the Americans wanted. The British wanted to rest for the winter, hoping they would, quote, hold New Jersey over that time and begin again in the spring. Now, the British are going to catch on to this, what's going on in New Jersey, and they're going to counter, first by setting up little traps. They would send out foragers, as normal, but they would be backed closely by hidden forces of grenadiers or very well-trained troops. 
Even this didn't always work. A Virginia Continental unit was, quote, trapped by a superior force, but fought their way out and delivered a blow. In another case, Colonel uh, Mawwood thought that he had trapped a Jersey militia captain known as Scotch Willie in the same fashion by sending out foragers and then hiding a large force of grenadiers. But the Jersey locals were already onto this counter trap and they had an even larger force hidden. So when the trap was sprung, they, tr- they, they sprung their own trap and send the troops all the way back to Amboy, again, inflicting about 100 casualties. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. The Forage War, the Petite Guerre, had many effects. One is that it demonstrates the reason the British lost and the actual weak position that they had despite this huge army and navy. They had a very weak position anywhere from the coasts. The local population, even in a state arguably with a strong loyalist population like Jersey, not enough of them supported the British force, not enough to commit to giving supplies, to giving real help in the battle to forage. There wasn't enough support on the ground to support them sustaining control of large areas of land. This forage war also improves George Washington's reputation at a time he bitterly needs it. Without him being able to send glowing reports to Congress about how they're sniping and scraping at the British force and not just allowing them to be there, he might have been replaced. We might have been denied a great leader and future president. On January 24th, 1777, American Continentals were defeated by 600 British regulars near Quibbletown, but the British suffered larger losses than they. Even where they were defeated, they acted skillfully and inflicted pain on the enemy. Washington thought that the Americans were learning to use their weapons more skillfully than the year before. He wrote to his brother, Our scouts and the enemy foraging parties have frequent skirmishes in which they always sustain the greatest loss in killed and wounded, owing 
to our superior skill in firearms. You see the change in the mentality. Here's a Hartcourt, Colonel Hartcourt again. America's never to be regained without making an absolute conquest of her. The nature and constitution of the country, in which every man is, to a certain degree, a soldier, a victory can seldom prove as, as decisive as it would be in Europe. He informs his father that he wanted to ask his majesty's leave to return to England, if he could do it with honor. There could be even a more dramatic effect. The British left Jersey June 1777, and they were out of the state. Gone were the hopes of a spring offensive there. They would return the next year only to retreat through Jersey from Philadelphia and get on ships at Sandy Hook. And they would be met there by Washington and Charles Lee's force. And the Battle of Monmouth would occur. Not exactly a victory, not exactly a loss, kind of a draw, slight American victory because they held the field. But essentially that battle was part of a retreat from the British through Jersey. There would never be a significant battle again. Something more significant happens that sets up Yorktown. In order for Washington to trap Cornwallis in Yorktown, it was necessary, since he had the British bottled up by sea, to bottle them up by land as well and surround Yorktown. In order to do that, he had to transport his army and that of the a General Rochambeau, the French army, and march them from Rhode Island, where they were at Newport, through New Jersey to Virginia. Now, the British held New York and had a large force there. They could have, they were aware of the movement, they could have contested Washington's force. The British in New York, in their enclave there, were too hesitant to send troops into Jersey to block or delay the Yorktown operation. And thus, Jersey played an important, if unsung, role in the Revolutionary War. Thank you.